are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Great, great show heading into the holiday weekend. We've got ESPN college football analyst for SEC Saturday night, Jordan Rogers, on the show. 45-minute discussion about what's coming up in the 2023-2024 college football season. We will get to all that momentarily. Now, obviously, there's other things going on in sports. Today, the NBA free agency starts at 6 p.m. Eastern time, but we all know these teams have already been talking to players. There's already been people that have been signed and uh, re-signed with their own teams. Harrison Barnes signed a three-year, what, $54 million contract to re-up with Sacramento. Uh, Nikola Vucevic is re-signing with the Bulls. There's a lot going on. But today is going to be all college football because it's my favorite sport. I loved talking to Jordan for the first time. A um, lot of good stuff to talk about, like I've been telling you the last couple of days. We talk about Alabama's quarterback battle. We talk about Georgia being the dominant team in college football right now. Talk about the depth of quarterbacking in the Pac-12. What Dion is doing at Colorado. The 12-team playoff versus the 14-team playoff. Which one does he like better? That and so much more. We're just going to get right to it. There's no need to introduce anything else. So here we go. Let's get going. It's Jordan Rogers from ESPN College Football SEC Saturday night. All right, let's bring him in. You see him on ESPN. He is the SEC Network Analyst. You see him on SEC Saturday nights. It is Jordan Rogers. Jordan, thanks for coming on, man. What's going on? I'm glad to talk some ball with you. Yeah, this is great. I mean, there's so much to talk about. And, I, and I'm wondering, you know, this is June uh camp start up what end of july when do you start digging into your college football prep for the upcoming season or have you already started a little bit of both so like you know college football is a great occupation to be in because kind of get a big off season right so as soon as the national championship is done in january don't have much until spring games so i jump back and do a lot of prep and rosters and new guys for the spring games and I'll do some pro days, did a couple pro days for the NFL draft. And so I'll kind of get my baseline prep in spring and then summer hits. And really right about now is when I start to prep for, we have a big media days, SEC, everybody gathers in Nashville, players are there, coaches are there. So I'll do a little prep for that. And then as August, middle of August comes around, that's when like quarterback competitions and starting rosters start to kind of formulate themselves. So it's kind of a, stop and go prep because if you prep too much too early you could be studying guys and players that aren't even going to be playing or on teams because of the transfer portal these days so a um, little bit of prep now leading into the middle of july and the middle of august will really be prepping hard for the season once uh, starting lineups and some of the starters end up emerging well you you know you talk about these players and um you know getting ready and trying to remember memorize rosters i'm sure it was a hell of a lot easier before the transfer portal, because this thing is kind of, it's the wild, wild west now. It is absolutely crazy. Um, the turnover, like you could have a bunch of guys leave your team and then, you know, a lot, a lot of the big things in when determining, you know, top 25 teams is, well, how many returning starters do they have? Well, you might have five or six starters that transferred out, but if you bring in guys from the portal that will starters, technically they're not listed as quote unquote returning starters because they weren't returning to your team, but they were starters on other teams. So I just want to get your opinion. What do you think of the transfer portal? You see what Dion's doing in Colorado. It just seems like it's almost too much. Like I do think you should be able to transfer and play right away, but has it gotten a little bit out of control? 
a little bit. Um, I, I do like how they're narrowing some of the transfer portal windows. That's kind of new this last year. Before that, you could transfer whenever yeah. at any time, which made it absolutely insane for coaches as well. Coaches need to be able to know when players are going to be available, when their roster needs to be set, like when they can actually decide that they want to bring somebody else new in. So kind of closing those windows down to more of a 60-day period as opposed to any day of the year, whenever they want to, um, has helped out a lot. Um, I, it's tough being a player, right? Because on one hand, players have to be able to transfer and play right away because coaches can tell you and sell you as a high school kid, hey, come play for me. I'm going to take care of you for four years. You can be a big part of our program. And then they can be gone in six months. Um, so player needs to be able to leave just like a coach can leave for greener pastures. So, But when you're transferring multiple, multiple times, I do feel like there needs to be either a cap on it or there needs to be kind of some refiguring of the parameters around when and how many times you can transfer. I do think no matter what, if your coach leaves, you should be granted an immediate transfer if you want. Uh, That to me, uh, you committed to a coach and that coach leaves. That's a big part of your, the reason you decide to go to a certain school, Uh, whether it's a scheme or a coach or whatever it is, like coach leaves, you should be able to leave. So I do think there needs to be nuances to it. Um, it's a good thing at its core, but yeah, still, it's a little out of control. It's a little bit of the wild, wild west right now. That'll start to change. I think in the next couple of years, as we get some parameters around that and NIL, hopefully. As we know, you know, you quarterbacked in the sec, you're doing broadcasting, uh, your games are in the sec with sec Saturday night. Um, so I want to start there in terms of coverage. Uh, first off, let's start at Alabama. Um, I think this Alabama, Georgia kind of. I don't know, changing of the guard, so to speak, with Georgia winning the last two national championships. Their coach directly worked under Nick Saban for as long as he did, the Kirby Smart. And I'm interested in Georgia's dominance. Is this just, I don't know, of your opinion, is this just a case of the student learning from the teacher and now he's better than him? Or is there more to what Kirby's built at Georgia? Because this is this is a powerhouse now. This is Bama you know, five, 10 years ago. And it doesn't seem like it's stopping anytime soon. No doubt. I mean, and Kirby deserves all the credit because he did take a proven blueprint in how Nick Saban runs his program, top to bottom. I mean, when you go to practices, meetings, like that is the blueprint that Kirby brought to Georgia. So credit him of learning under the, the GOAT, the greatest of all time in Nick Saban. And he didn't make it his own. Like Kirby's a different coach than Saban but it is the structure the 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 skeleton the bones of it are the same but what he's kind of also capitalized on is the fact that the east has been down for really the last you can almost call it decades like Florida has not been the same program in the 2010s now 2020s that it was in the early 2000s when it was a powerhouse under under uh, with Urban Meyer and Tim Tebow Um, so you hit the east at a time where there's not an LSU that's still a really strong program that Alabama's got to go toe-to-toe with every single year, no matter what. So the West has been stronger the last five, six, seven years, no doubt. And so that was kind of a perfect storm, I think, for Kirby of building his program in the East. Also, Georgia's one of the best recruiting beds in the entire country, so he has it in his backyard. Um, so I think it's a little bit of a perfect storm. That's not to take away from Kirby, and I don't mean that to take away from Kirby at all. Um, But Georgia is an absolute powerhouse because of what he's implemented there from a program standpoint, top to bottom. You couple that with recruiting beds. You couple that with the fact that the East has been a little bit down. I think that's been the perfect storm. But they are the team to beat. I mean, they are 
they are the new Alabama in the SEC. They're the new Alabama in the entire country. So that's not going anywhere anytime soon. Saban's now, his job is to beat Georgia, where it was always everybody else's job to beat Saban and beat Alabama. I'm I'm fascinated by Bama this year because and, – and maybe I'm reading too much into it because of the spring game, but both uh, – what's his name? Jalen Monroe uh, – what's what's the returning quarterback? Milrow. Milrow. Yeah. Uh, and I forget the other one. Um, both played very poorly in the spring game. It's one game. It's, you know, a controlled scrimmage. But these guys were – they weren't hitting 50% of their passes in the spring game, which then led to Tyler Buckner transferring from – Notre Dame to Alabama because Alabama had uh, Kirby had taken in Tommy Reese from Notre Dame to be his new offensive coordinator. So now you're like, well, God, does Tyler Buckner transfer because he wants to sit? Like it almost seems like I don't know who's got the inside track, and I don't know if this is something that this is going to be a quarterback by committee that Saban wants to do, or somebody's got to win it outright. But if he struggles early, do you go to somebody else? Uh, this might be one of the few years where Alabama just, if they don't win it this year, probably is because of their quarterback play. No doubt, because they're going to be really, really good on defense. They have a lot of young talent, especially in the secondary. And I actually think their receiving core is extremely underrated. If you can even say that at Alabama, a lot of the young guys they had, Kendrick Lobby and one of them that I think is going to be a, a big-time contributor, didn't really do much last year. But the long, young group of receivers last year, really developed and you could see that in the spring I was there multiple times you could see the spring game even though like you said quarterbacks were inconsistent but here's what I think about that situation Jalen Milrow is a freak of an athlete yeah I mean it's like you built him on Madden I mean he is the fastest dude on the field he's dynamic he's got a big arm but here's the thing Tommy Reese got brought in because he is an extremely talented young offensive mind that is great at developing quarterbacks and I think the telltale sign of which direction they were leaning in. Because if you think about it, Jalen Milrow needs to run an offense that fits Jalen Milrow. Ty Simpson needs to run an offense that is kind of what Alabama has been doing and kind of what Tommy Reese is used to doing. Um, so you got to pick one or the other. I think after that spring game, they got together and realized, I think Ty Simpson is more of what we're looking for, but we need somebody that can come in and run this offense because we have talent everywhere around the quarterback, at running back, at wide receiver, at tight end, on defense. Quarterback's the only question mark right now, and really they don't need a Bryce Young, a guy that can change the game, that can make unbelievable plays happen. They need a Mac Jones. And I don't mean that to downplay Mac Jones because he was unbelievable, first-round draft pick. But Mac Jones was a guy that played in the pocket, distributed the football. He did it at an extremely high level. That's what they need. So I do believe – as dynamic as Jalen Milrow is, and I do think he'll have somewhat of a role at times, a few a package of plays, I do believe it's Tyler Buckner or Ty Simpson. You know, actually, despite the inconsistencies, I was impressed with Ty Simpson. I did the spring game, so I was there on the sideline. Um, really accurate, strong arm to the perimeter. He struggled. I think everybody struggled that day. But yeah. sometimes that happens in spring games. So I actually do think it's a kind of a two-man battle between, between Ty Simpson and Tyler Buckner just because – they realize the amount of talent they have around the quarterback. They just need somebody that, for lack of a better term, is not going to F it up. Yeah. And, and too many times, Jalen Miller will, will make a play that's like unbelievable, and then he'll make a play that you're like, what are you thinking? Yeah. How do you throw that ball? And you just you can't do that under Nick Saban. Yeah, it's almost like the, the phrase, the, what do we, what's the phrase that everyone loves to use? Game manager. They need a game manager. Just somebody that, like you said, doesn't One million percent. Yeah. Um, which which brings me to you know we're we're still a year away but 
with Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC in 2024, I almost feel like, you know, look, let's let's fast forward to that because one of the main things uh, that you brought up earlier is the fact that Georgia has dominated their division. Well, in 2024, we know SEC is just going divisionless, and we've seen yep. the schedules that have come out. These are some of the most unbelievable schedules you will see, and these teams are just going to pound on each other, but I think the benefit is – you know, I mean, Oklahoma has had their run in the Big 12, and they've had their 12-0 seasons and 11-1 seasons and, you know, made the college football playoff, I think, three or four times under Lincoln Riley, and uh, Texas has struggled. Um, they have not been the team that I think everyone thought they were going to be, and now they're going to go to the SEC in 2024. It's like Texas is an 8-4 and and 9-3 team in the Big 12 for the last 10 years. Like, what are they expecting when they go to the SEC? Like, I don't know, but – the thing that I want to talk about is the 12 team playoff that's coming to college football in 2024. Yeah. I like it. I, I know there are purists out there uh, that don't and are, are against it. And they just think that's, Oh, that's, that's too many. And how are we going to incorporate the bowl system in this? I just think the more good college football matchups we get, the better. Where's your take on the 12 team playoff? I love it. And, and I agree with you. I, I, yeah. I think you can make good arguments that, Four is you can find four elite teams, no doubt. But that eliminates teams that get hot late in the season. I remember a couple years ago when Spencer Rattler was still at Oklahoma, they lost their first two games of the season, and then they rolled undefeated the rest of the year, and they beat the dog crap out of Florida in the Sugar Bowl, a game I called on radio. That team would not have made a four-team playoff, but that team could beat anybody that year in a playoff. right? I mean, they had a chance to get to anybody. So I, I do think you have to realize that teams get better at the end of the year, Injuries happen. College football is a different animal. So I do think opening it up allows for some of those teams that gelled later, had an injury, were able to overcome it, or teams that played in the SEC. And you know what? You're going to lose a few just because you're playing the quality opponents you do week in and week out. So it gives them a chance to still make a run if they are a team that can prove they're one of the best. So I love it. But to your point, when the SEC goes without divisions, I think that's why we saw the spring meetings in Destin, all the SEC coaches, they decided to stay at eight SEC games. Instead of go to nine, they realize that they know that Oklahoma and Texas are good programs that are coming over and they don't want to play one more conference game until they absolutely have to. So a little bit of self-preservation there. Also understanding that with a 12 team playoff, you know, you can make it in going nine and three, you can make it in going, you know, 10 and two. So I think there's a lot of gamesmanship there and a lot of unknown about the future, but I think it's the right thing. SEC going without divisions and 12 team playoff is going to be great. It's going to weed out. It's going to weed out teams like TCU. Right, I mean, TCU just was not ready to be on the same playing field. Yeah. Um, and I think they would have lost early um, to an Alabama. Perfect example, <laughs> when Alabama you know, could throttle them, you know, they would have lost earlier in a playoff, and I think we would have had a better matchup you know, for a national championship or for the last semifinal. Yeah, and I think that you know, we all know that since the four-team playoff started, there's never been a, a, a two-loss team that has made the college football playoff. But you said it. I mean, with going to 12 teams, you're going to have a 9-3 and three SEC team make it in, I would say, almost every year. Because, I mean, just looking ahead, I'm looking at it right now, Tennessee's schedule in 2024. They play Bama. They play Florida. They play Arkansas. They play Georgia. They play Oklahoma. Uh -huh. Like, just, I mean, Florida's got the most ridiculous Brutal. one. Florida's got Kentucky, LSU, Ole Miss, A&M, Georgia, Mississippi State, Tennessee, Texas. That's Florida's eight games in 2024. 
I mean, honestly, they could That's go wild. they could go one and seven in that. Looking at that now, we don't know what those other teams are going to look like in twenty twenty four. But Florida is looking down the barrel of a one and seven in conference, maybe a two and six. But you know, we don't know. We don't know how good Florida's no going to be in those teams. But that is, but I think going to twelve teams, that is absolutely you're going to have because a nine and three SEC team is going to put on their resume. Yeah, we lost three games, but we lost you know at Bama by seven, and we lost at home by one to Georgia, or so, you know something like that. They're getting in, and I think that's why. And Steve, what what I don't understand. What I don't understand about everybody that gripes about expanding it and is, is more on the perfection or the finding the perfect teams of the 14 playoffs, tell me what are the best playoffs in any sport, professional, amateur, NFL playoffs, and March Madness. Yeah. Are we, are we only finding the perfect teams in those? No. What do we love about March Madness? That a smaller school can make a run, can play the best basketball at the right time. And do we say that – they're less of a national championship when a, a four seed wins just because they lost 12 games in the regular season. No, we don't. Same with the NFL playoffs. So are, are we mad when a wild card team 10 and six makes it in, you know, back when they're playing 16 games and, and makes a run and wins the Super Bowl? Are they less of a champion? No, they were the best team when it mattered the most. And so, you know, I think the perfectionism can go out the window because this is a volatile game. You get one opportunity every week. And these are college kids that have relationships and breakups and class and injuries. I mean, anything can happen. So I think opening it up is only going to be better down the road, as we see with other sports. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's one game. This isn't this isn't you have to play Georgia in a best three out of five series or Alabama in a three out of five series. It is right. one game on one day. Maybe Georgia has an off day that day, and you play your best ball. That's and and what do people love? You mentioned you know you mentioned March Madness. And we talk about what people love the most. We love the upsets. Who's who's not going to be rooting for, you know, let's say, you know, five. Right now they have it set where the first four seeds are going to get buys. Five's going to play 12, you know, 6, 11, 7, 10, 8, 9. So five beats 12, and now they are going to play, um, you know, the one, you know, the one will play, well, the one will play the lowest remaining seed. But four will play five. But if, let's say, you know, the eight seed wins and the eighth, the eighth ranked team in America playing number one, should number one win? Sure, but on one game, what if the weather's bad? What if you know? Totally. There's so many different factors, and I love it. And I and I think that you know, I think everyone that gets excited for the college football season loves those first three weeks because we get matchups that the non-conference matchups are the ones that we love. When ESPN or ABC breaks out with their opening week, and we see the lineup of all these games, we have got a lot of good ones to start this season. I, you're only going to get more of those matchups that you're just never going to see because as we know a lot of these coaches they'll do one but they want to do you know north central you know nc a and t you know they want they want that on their schedule they want austin p they want a fcs team so they can just not bombard their teams with tight game after tight game after tight game so i love it i i love the fact what needs to happen though i think i think in conjunction with expanding the playoffs, here's what needs to happen. And I hope someday it does because there's still going to be that discussion of from 10 to 14 of who, what two teams should be in and 13 and 14 are going to feel snubbed yeah. at some point because we compare SEC to big 12. We say the SEC and the big 10 are, are just better than the big 12 and the Pac 12. And you may be right to some degree, but we need like the NFL does 
you know, the division winner plays the division winner of this, this conference and that conference. So like if you finish fifth in the SEC, your non-conference should be one year should be fifth place in the big 10 or should be fifth place in the big 12. That way you get so many more like data points to compare these conferences and to understand the strength of conferences top to bottom. Right. I think we need more uniformity when it comes to the non-conference games when we get to that point, because right now we're still kind of everyone's still operating on their own with their own self-interest. But I think that would really help solidify the schedules, the conference disparity, the strength of conferences and really help solidify those 12 um, as no doubt. Right. These are the best 12 teams, regardless of what conference they lay in. You know, taking it outside of the SEC and just going over kind of national stories here in college football for the upcoming season. Caleb Williams, returning Heisman Trophy winner for USC. Uh, you played quarterback in college. You come from a quarterback family. I mean, this is something to where, gosh, when I watch Caleb Williams play, this isn't just, wow, good college quarterback. Like This guy is, he's 1-1 next year, No, you know, or in the, in the NFL draft. He's going to be 1-1 in the 2024 NFL draft. When you watch Caleb Williams play, is this just, wow, he's a great quarterback, or is this a generational quarterback on the next level? I think he's, he's close to the conversation of generation. I don't think he's there yet. But when I watch him, he's so natural. And I think what you're seeing is there's been a big seismic shift in the evolution of the quarterback position in the last decade. And really it was brought on by the RPOs. The RPOs, the run-pass options, where the ball can be in the running back's stomach, but at the last second the quarterback needs to pull it, and get rid of it as quickly as possible. And what that did, <clears throat> excuse me, that got rid of the big 6'4", muscly, strong-arm quarterbacks that can push it 60 yards downfield but have a slow delivery, can't throw off platform. So now you're seeing guys that mimic Mahomes and his ability to throw off platform because that's the way the game is evolving. So Caleb Williams is so natural to be able to throw from any platform. I think that's what sets him apart His decision-making his arm talent. So when I watch him, you're like, that dude can run any NFL offense. He can make any throw. Like if he gets in the right system, he is going to be a superstar at the next level. So he has every ounce of ability and he has every opportunity with this year to cement himself as, like you said, a generational quarterback. I'm going to hold back just yet because we've seen Heisman trophies fizzle out of the next level. We've seen Heisman trophies have bad second years or follow up years. It wouldn't change my opinion of him if he did, but he definitely could get into that generational conversation. He's that talented. You know, I said let's, you know, talk a little national and get away from the SEC, but there was one team in the SEC that I think is really building something special, and that's in Tennessee. I think Josh Heupel taking over and doing what he did with that team last year, beating Alabama at home, just an exciting office. I mean, I love, you know, I look, I, I've been a college football fan for years. I bet on it every week. I mean, this is, this is what I love, and I don't – I can't stand Big Ten football. It just bores me to tears. I, I want to see. A, I want to see an open offense. I want to see a spread. I want to see you doing things different on offense, not just turn around and hand the ball off for three yards in a cloud of dust. Um, what Heupel does with that offense, I think, is great. Uh, Joe Milton is flinging the ball eighty yards on TikTok videos that I'm seeing this off season. He he did great at the at the Manning Passing Academy, apparently. So. Uh, your take on Tennessee. I don't know if they repeat what they did last year, but where this program is headed compared to what they were when they were going through uh, the Derek Dooleys and, and they could not find a coach for seemingly after Phil Fulmer left. It looks like they found one in Hypel. No doubt. I, I love Hype. Um, 
you know, I get to do plenty of their games every single year. I get to sit down and talk with him a ton. He's like, he's just a ball coach. Like he doesn't love the media. He doesn't love talking to us. He's great with us, but he just loves coaching. But what's interesting about this offense, and you say like our team's going to figure it out. Like it's, it's a little bit gimmicky. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, they run fast pace. They use wide splits. The, really the way you beat that and Georgia showed that is you have big physical corners that can press at the line of scrimmage. The problem is, those guys aren't made on those guys aren't aren't grown on trees. Not everybody has big physical corners that can play press man coverage, and that's the problem. Georgia does. Most schools don't though. So this is a team that because they're so much better this year on defense, they're deeper. They had a lot of injuries the last two years, which I think really hurt them, especially last year. They're better on defense. I think they're going to be just as good on offense. And like you said, Joe Milton, that is a generational talent. Now whether he's going to be a generational quarterback, who knows. Puts up a crazy year, he absolutely could. Puts up a crazy year, he could be like an Anthony Richardson that's getting talked about being a top-five quarterback. No doubt. He's that physically gifted. You mentioned the 80-yard throw. I sat down with him this spring. I was like, Joe, just I mean, shoot it to me straight. Like, how far can you throw the ball? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? Coming from somebody that I was never – no one ever confused me with having a huge arm. Not a good arm. I don't throw it 60 yards, 61 or two maybe. And he's like, well, you know, I've, I've thrown it over 90. I'm like, what? So he tossed that 180 the other day. Everybody saw it on social media at the Manny Passing Academy. That was no doubt 80 yards, easy. That's not as far as he can throw it, which is just stupid. So if he puts together a year where he can show consistency, which he did from his year where he got beat out by Hendon Hooker to last year in the limited time we saw him, he improved on his deep ball accuracy. He improved on his intermediate accuracy. Is he a polished product yet no but if he takes another step with his consistency look out because they could absolutely make another run just like they did last year they are a problem for anybody that they play and with their defense getting better i don't see that there's any way that they they aren't set up to do what they did last year and you know the one conference that takes a beating every year and i think in the since the advent of the 14 playoff i believe they've only had one team enter uh, or twice. They got Oregon in there once, and they got Washington in there once. Obviously, it's the Pac-12. But you look at the Pac-12 this year, this top six quarterback lineup in the Pac-12 this year is real. It's I would say top to, I'd say top heavy that no other conference has these quarterbacks. You've got Caleb Williams at USC. You've got Bo Nix at Oregon. Michael Penix Jr. at Washington. Cam Rising at Utah, who's played in back-to-back uh, Rose Bowls. Shadur Sanders coming in at Colorado, and then you know you've uh, Cam Ward at Washington State, and then maybe you know this freshman that UCLA stole from Oregon, Dante Moore, looks like he's going to start. Uh, you can even go down to Arizona with Jaden Delora, DJ DJ Uyunglele going to Oregon State. That's your ninth quarterback. I mean, yeah, I'm excited. I just don't know if this is going to be. Um, just a free-for-all where they're all going to beat each other and they're all going to have three losses. Um, but out of that, I mean, we already talked about Caleb Williams, but out of that pack, I love Michael Penix Jr. And I think this guy is another guy that is, if he has the year that I think a lot of people think he's going to have, and shit, last year he threw for 4,500 yards and 30 touchdowns, I think this guy is one of these guys that could go top five uh, in the NFL draft. I love his arm. Um, I think he's got a great coach. Kalen DeBoer is is absolutely the coach for him. I'm loving this team. I don't know defensively if they're good enough yet. We'll see. But Michael Penix Jr. is the one for me if Caleb Williams somehow falters in that league. 
and not enough people are talking about him. And I get a Heisman vote. I had him, I think, third on my Heisman ballot, Michael Penix Jr. Um, I thought he deserved a lot more credit last year than he got in the end. Um, but he is extremely talented, like you said, and, and they have the weapons that are returning. He's got a huge arm. He's a lefty, and I always say this kind of tongue-in-cheek. It just doesn't look as pretty coming from a lefty as it does a righty, and that may be because I'm a righty, and most quarterbacks are, but he's got a rocket for an arm. He's extremely accurate. They run a very complex offense up there. Their offensive coordinator's name is escaping me right now, um, but I did their bowl game, so I sat down with him, sat down with DeBoer, had extensive conversations. I love the staff they have. I think Michael Penix Jr. is poised for an absolute huge year, especially with a couple of the guys coming back on offense, but you said it. Pac-12 is the deepest quarterback conference, no doubt. Bo Nix is extremely talented. On a talent-only spectrum, Bo Nix is a first-round draft pick. Now, he's got a lot of bad tape out there. He's got a lot of good tape out there. So he's still got a big case to make for himself projecting to the next level. But from an arm talent, a skill set perspective, he's extremely talented, as is Michael Penix Jr. And Cam Rising has, does nothing but win big-time games when he has an opportunity to. So – I think this is going to be really fun to watch play out. Like you said, though, if they all kind of beat each other once or twice, you might be going, oh, the Pac-12 is not that good, when really they are pretty good. I think they're poised to be a really strong conference, um, depending on how it shakes out. And finally, I want to end with this. Um, the talk of college football um, this offseason has really been what Deion Sanders has done at Colorado with the – the mass exodus of players after the spring game, but the amount of people they're bringing in, just his, I guess, the celebrity status that he is. Uh, he's he's very um, he's very uh, he's very transparent online. I mean, everything you see. Every, I I scroll through TikTok and I see more meetings of Deion Sanders talking to his players than I see of any other team in the nation. Like he just. It's it's a spectacle there, you know. They had what they sell out their spring game when they hadn't even they were begging people to show up to their spring games the years before, and then they are charging people and they sell out the whole stadium on a bad weather day. He that story is the most fascinating. They could go eight and four, or they could go two and ten. Like I don't know what to expect at Colorado yeah. next year. I I don't know what what is your take on this? Well, I think the best thing about Dion and what he's done is, is he gets it. And like, like we've talked about, this is a new era of college football with the transfer portal, with NIL, with social media, like what kids want out of a program is different than when I was going on recruiting trips. And when I'm going on recruiting trips, I wanted an opportunity to play. And I was, re- I really cared about facilities because that's where I was going to spend 95% of my day. Today is a little different, right? You, you have money and opportunities that you're pitching these kids with. And also the social media aspect of it, Dion kills it. But, but that's what you have to do. When you're changing a program, you need to recruit talent. When Colorado's been as bad as they have been, people aren't coming there to play at Colorado. They're coming there to play with Dion. They're coming there because their kids are blowing up on social media because Dion puts such an emphasis on highlighting his players and getting them out there. They're coming there because Dion's creating NIL opportunities. And, oh, by the way, he's a Hall of Famer, one of the best to ever play the game. So they're coming there knowing – that they're getting a good coach as well. But I love what Dion's done. I think, look, it's the big roster turnover has gotten a lot of negative pushback, I think. And, and look, he, he completely flipped that roster. I think last I read, there's only 10 guys from last year on that team. 
I was a part of a roster turnover. I was a part of a program at Vandy that back back two and 10 years, James Franklin came in this hot, energetic, um, charismatic on fire coach. And you know what? He pushed us so hard that he was wanting guys to leave. Right. I mean, he was, he was like, look, you don't want to come and work this hard every day. Good. Walk out the front door, but that's what you need sometimes. Like you need to kind of trim the fat and realize who's bought in, who's the caliber that we need to compete in the sec or like Dion's doing to compete in the pac 12. Let's keep those guys. And let's bring everybody else that wants to be a part of this, wants to commit to how hard this is going to be, and let's get them in the door. Because when you're a bad team, it's probably because there's a lot of guys that maybe aren't as talented as you need, which, granted, that's one of them, but also that just aren't committed to what it takes to be successful. And I use Vandy as kind of a my turnaround at Vandy there because we went from 2-10 and 10 to 6-7, and seven, going to a bowl game the next year, to 9-4, and four, Last, you know, the, the most wins in 97 years at Vandy. And if you look at the players on that roster, we didn't bring in a bunch of five-star recruits. Mm. James Franklin came in and said, here's the standard at which you need to work to be successful. You want to be a part of it? Good. If you don't, there's the door. And we had a lot of guys leave, but we changed how we kind of approached the game and we won a lot more games. So Dion did that. And he also, because of the new era of college football, was able to leverage bringing in a lot more guys than you could really have the opportunity to do, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Well, yeah, that's – you just kind of want to remind people that may be upset at Dion coming in and just bringing in his own guys and letting go of the players that were on that team. The players that were on that team last year, arguably you could say was the worst college football team in all of Division One last year in FBS. Yeah. They averaged 15 points a game and gave up yeah. 45. Why do you want to play with those guys again? Like, they were 1-11 and got outscored by 30 a game. Like – they shouldn't have even beaten Cal. Like the one win that they had was luck. I mean, so that's why it's like I understand what he's doing, and he's brash. He's Dion. We know. We know his act. We've seen it for years. Totally. But it works clearly. The guy went down, and look, I have no idea how good he is X's and O's wise, but he has surrounded himself with his offensive coordinator, his defense coordinator. These are all guys that have been head coaches, so he clearly knows what he's doing. And like you said, they're going to play for him and I have no problem with what he did and but it's going to be fascinating to see how quick like that's my thing you've played college sports before you, you those yeah. teams how quick can 45 new guys on a team who didn't play together last year how quick can they gel they've got TCU on the road out of the box they come home and play Nebraska and then they go play a Pac-12 schedule like I said I don't know if this team's winning two or three games or they're winning seven or eight or maybe they're right in the middle maybe they're right around Four or five. I don't know, but it's going to be fascinating. To and watch. honestly, I don't think any of that, and I don't think either way, right? If it's bad and they win three or four games or they, they outperform, they win eight. Uh, I don't think it's a reflection on Dion, right? I mean, what he did is not easy. Bringing that many guys in, it's, it's probably not going to look great early on. That's football. There's no other sport in the world that requires 11 dudes at the exact same time to all be on the exact same page for one goal executing at a high level. It's, just, it's hard. Right. So it may not look pretty at times, but he's going to get that thing turned around. And to your point, he doesn't have to be an X's and O's guy. Now, I think that's a big misconception in college football today, especially now, more so than it was five years ago, way more so than it was 10 years ago when I was playing. You have to be a CEO first as a head coach. You have to be a CEO. You have to be a marketer. You have to sell your program, make it attractive. And if you surround yourself with the right support, X's and O's guys, good football guys. You don't have to be an X's and O's guy. This isn't a knock on James Franklin. 
James Franklin is a great X's and O's guy, but he's a much better marketer. He's a much better CEO than he ever was an X's and O's guy. And he's found success at Penn State, um, you know, doing that. And, and so I think that's the new blueprint. You don't have to be a position coach that works his way up and knows X's and O's in and out or in and out better than anybody. You have to be a CEO. You have to be a guy that can market yourself, put a, a school on the map, be attractive, have players want to come play for you and surround them with guys that can develop them. Yeah, absolutely. Jordan, it's been great talking to you. Everybody, if you listen to him, you can watch him on SEC Saturday night, uh, an ESPN SEC network analyst. Jordan, you know, it's funny because I, being a college football fan as I am, and just, you get a lot of people that watch sports and they're like, ugh, why, why do these announcers talk so much? And why do, why do, why do we have, an, an, or I just want to mute the, I love watching football, but I want to mute the announcer. See, I'm, with a with a broadcasting background, I love watching announcers. I love listening to announcers. I love to see who's good, who's moving up on the who's moving up the chain. And you are a guy that when you came into ESPN, you've worked your way up to where you are right now. And I think it's because when I listen to an analyst, whether it's football, basketball, or baseball, I just want to sit there and watch a game. And I judge my analyst by. Did they teach me something? Did I learn something that I did not know going into this totally. game? And you do that when I watch SEC games, and you don't do it in a way where it comes across as I'm a know-it-all. It's it's a condescending like you should all know this. It's very easily explainable. I think you do an excellent job, and and I wish you and I and you deserve all the the accolades that you've gotten and, and worked your way up at ESPN the way you have because you're good. And, I, and I'm not saying that to just blow smoke up your ass. You're a very good analyst, and I learn when I listen to you. And that's what you got to do when you listen and you watch football in any sport is that's how you tell about a good color analyst is am I learning something and are they telling me it in a way that the average layperson can understand? And you do that very well. I appreciate that. And I will say the hardest thing for any analyst is like, and I remember this my first couple games, is dead air is so uncomfortable for the analyst, but it's so beautiful for the listener, right? You, you don't need to bury your game. But I will say, like, I remember getting my very first college football game assignment. The first year I was with ESPN, and I was only really supposed to do some studio stuff. So my boss called me and said, hey, we're going to put you on a game this weekend. I'm like, awesome. Like, I've never done one before. Like, what do I do? And he's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, do I need to, like, does, is someone going to tell me how to do this? And he's like, no, you're good. Just, you know, just, you know, go, go talk about football. And I'm like, what? No one tells you like, like, you know, what do I prep for this? What do I need to have a chart in front of me? Like, when am I supposed to talk? What am I not? But like, you know, I've watched football my whole life. So it's not like I didn't know exactly what to do, but it's, it's interesting. You jump into this and it's kind of just, Hey, figure it out. And if you're good, you're good. If you're not, you're not. And, and we'll figure that out pretty quickly. But it's funny, man. The hardest thing early on was like, I talked so much because you're like, wait, I, I, I can't be silent. If I'm silent, people maybe think I don't know what I'm talking about and there's dead air and that feels uncomfortable. And then, you know, seven years in, I'm like, the less I have to talk, the better. Like, you know, I, I like talking. I like, you know, being casual. I like trying to teach a little something, but like I always, I write really big, you know, right in, in my notes, a, a sticky note that just says, let it breathe. Just cause you know, it's football. Like people like to learn, like you said, but people just want to watch the game too. So I try not to be too overbearing at times, but it's a dance and it's a, I, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, shut up. And I'm like, I probably could have shut up a little bit more on that time. You're probably right. Well, I don't think people understand. I mean, just being an NFL analyst, baseball, you got all the time in the world. I mean, maybe this season it's sped up a little bit with the pitch clock, but you just have all the time in the world as a baseball analyst. A basketball analyst, yeah, you got to speak in a basketball and football pretty much the same. You only have, you so 
just think about this. If you're if you're a viewer right now and you're watching it and you're thinking about watching a football game or a basketball game, just think about this. A play happens, and as the analyst, not only do you have to kind of describe the play or maybe get people to understand what happened, you have maybe a 10 to 12 second window. So you're basically speaking yeah. in spurts. It's just it's not an easy thing to do, and everyone thinks it is. And it is not at all because you can't you can't talk for 45 seconds straight as an analyst. You don't. You have to you have to speak in short well, concise sentences that explain things without it getting too explainy and too over the people's heads, you know? Oh yeah. Especially if you're doing a Tennessee game, right? I mean, you mentioned it. Like you literally have maybe 10 seconds between when the ball when the player is tackled to when they're going to snap it again. And what people don't realize is when I'm not talking over the air, I'm talking to my producer in the truck telling him, hey, I need to see this replay of that receiver field level. Or, hey, I need to see that all 22 because I need to see the whole play develop like when we come back to replay. So, like, there's a million things going on. And, oh, by the way, oh, shoot, they're about to snap the ball. Never mind. No replay. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, no, that's not easy to do. But, like I said, you're very good at your job. And uh, we'll definitely be watching in a couple months when uh, college football starts up, my favorite sport uh, in the whole world. Jordan, thanks so much for coming Wait, on. Wait, who's, who's your team, Steve? Well, you know Wait, what? hold up. Well, who's your who's your team? Honestly, I <laughs> this is going to sound so bad. Um I and I say this this is my this is my response to everybody that asks me who's my team when it comes to NFL or college. My team is the team I have money on that week. That's who my team is. And that's just the way it is I because it. I don't have I I grew up in Southern totally. California. I'm a, the only two teams that I openly root for are the Lakers and the Dodgers. But college football is my favorite sport. I love players. I love coaches. I love stories. And I just like when things happen. Like, I loved the TCU story last year. I thought it was great. I thought Max Duggan was, you know, this is a guy that wasn't even starting at the beginning of the year, and Stephen Morris gets hurt at halftime in the first game. And here he is leading a team that nobody expected to the national championship. Like, I love shit like that. Did I bet TCU in the national championship and get killed? Yes, I did. But um, that's what I mean. Like, (laughs) you know, that's – but my favorite team, like, I don't – I guess I don't have one. I just – I consume all the games on the weekend. I watch as much college football as I can, and uh, I just like players uh, and coaches and storylines. So, yeah, that's the best. That's the best answer. We I can, can we could probably agree on this. We can probably agree on this because I grew up a Pac-10, Pac-10 boy yeah. back in the day when before it was twelve. College football is better when USC is back, and so we talked about Caleb Williams earlier. I, I'm really hoping that the Pac-12 has a powerhouse emerge. I'm hoping USC is back to form at some point. The USC that we saw when Leinart and Bush were there back when I was growing up, sitting in the stands watching it. Like, being a West Coast guy, I think college football is better when we have big representation across the country. So I'm hoping USC puts it together wire to wire this year. It'd be fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, God, I want to – we didn't bring up SC. And – you know, this is something that I love. Uh, you know, I think Lincoln Riley, obviously an offensive genius. He, Like I said, he took Oklahoma, I think, three or four times to the college football playoff. He puts up this. He goes to USC in his first year. I think they went 10-2 and two last year. Lost that kind of embarrassing bowl game to Tulane. The problem with Lincoln Riley teams is, we all know this, as great as his offenses are, it's unbelievable he cannot put a defense out there. Everywhere he's been, he cannot put a defense out there, and it's always going to be – his team's downfall, and you just wonder, is this what he's always going to be? If they end up finally winning a national championship, is it just going to be because they won the game 45-42? I don't know, but it is pretty amazing 
as great of a coach as he is, as great as an offensive mind as he is, man, they are they're not only like, no, nah, they're bad. No, they're like historically bad. <laughs> All of his teams that and, defensively. And I don't and know what he do. To that point, and I'll, I'll, I'll to that point, I'll leave you with this. Like the biggest question I get because I spend so much time in the SEC and even talking to coaches that come from the Big 12 or Pac Pac 12 that end up being coaches in the SEC, I like to ask them the same question as well. Like, what is the difference? Because everybody says, you know, SEC is better. And well, whatever. I mean, any college team can win on any Saturday. But being on the field for a Georgia-TCU game, as I was on the field before the game, and even Georgia-Ohio State, or is it Alabama? So my memory's going bad here. There is a huge difference, especially Georgia-TCU, the size of everybody on that roster. And we were at field level, and it literally just looked like Georgia was an NFL team. And TCU, from a size perspective, now they had some ballers on their team, but from a size perspective, looked like a high school football team. And I mean that sincerely. There is just a difference in the size of guys in the conference right now when it comes to Texas and Oklahoma. They're going to need to get bigger. And even talking to those coaches over there, they're saying, man, our emphasis, knowing we're going to be in the SEC, is getting bigger on both sides of the line of scrimmage because that's where the biggest difference in this conference is. So that's in the, and like you said, that's Lincoln Riley, that defense, that size is going to become an issue, you know, in the big, in the big 10 at some point playing SEC, SEC teams down the road at some point, you're going to have a great offense, but at some point this game is physical. And when you got bigger dudes, a lot of times that helps. Yeah. You got to be able to stop somebody. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And he, every year he's been a head coach, his defenses have been terrible. Like, not even just average. They've been terrible. And it's cost him every time they've gone to the playoff. Yeah. LSU, you know, Joe Burrow throwing, what was it, was six touchdowns in the first half against them. It was just, it was embarrassing. Oh, yeah. You know, it was embarrassing. And, you know, losing to Tulane the way they did last year. Tulane putting up 40 on them in a bowl game. You know, it's just, right. it's bad. So, anyway, Jordan, thanks again for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Good luck this season, SEC football. We'll all be watching, man. Appreciate it, Steve. Anytime, man. You got it. Man, I feel like I could talk Jordan Rogers football for three hours. I mean, it was just so much, so much I want to get out there. You know, it's only June. As we get closer to college football season, I'm going to be talking more college football here on the Sports Daily, but I can't thank Jordan Rogers enough uh, for coming on. He was, him and his wife, JoJo, were on my weekly podcast, uh, the Reality Steve podcast. They were on that uh, yesterday. Uh, great conversation with them there. And I asked him, hey, can you stick around, talk some college football with me? He's like, sure. So I, I, he's been great uh, this week with me. And um hope you all enjoyed that conversation, getting you ready for uh, college football season. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please follow uh, an Apple podcast, rate and review. That certainly helps the podcast as well. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See you.